The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anthony Curry, and with me in the studio are Jennifer Saber and Anna Shemansky. Welcome to the both of you. Later in the program, we'll pit royalist against Republican to debate the economic impact to the United Kingdom of what ought to be an irrelevance. Prince Harry, or perhaps we should call him Mr Harry Windsor from now on, and his wife Meghan's decision to spin themselves off from the British royal family. But first, our colleagues in Asia discuss the fast-changing situation as China battles the latest infectious virus to hit the country. Since we recorded this segment, the death toll has risen to at least 18, and Beijing has imposed travel restrictions on Wuhan, where the outbreak began, and at least four other cities. Katrina Hamlin, over to you. Thanks, Anthony. I'm here in Hong Kong with our Asia Economics editor, Pete Sweeney. It's the week before Chinese New Year, and China is panicking at a mysterious pneumonia, which has so far, uh, as of the 21st of January, killed four people. Pete, why is everyone so scared? Well, okay, we should qualify panicking. Like, it's not like people are running out in the street and blowing mm. things up. So it's not quite zombie apocalypse. But people are very, very nervous. And the reason is that partly because it really couldn't be worse timed in terms of the Chinese festive calendar. Chinese New Year is about to kick off. On the 24th, it will see about 400 million Chinese people start traveling both inside and outside the country. They're going through train stations. They're going through airports. And we just had confirmation that the disease can, in fact, be transmitted human to human, which was a question for a while, and which has everybody extremely nervous. Um, the WHO is, is convening a, an emergency meeting to assess. Um, Australia is worried about Chinese travelers. It's going to start screening. Um, you know, Chinese authorities obviously themselves are very worried. Um, there's an economic component as well. Um, so far, you know, the, there, there's been maybe a couple hundred cases, I think. Most people have survived it so far. So it's unclear, like, whether this is something super, super serious or whether, you know, we'll have some few tragic deaths from people with immune, you know, weak immune systems and the like. But the uncertainty itself coming now is poorly timed. Um, it's supposed to be this big spending spree on travel, people going out and shopping, um, you know, if Chinese people hunker down in their houses, don't go out, don't buy anything because they don't know what to make of this the news, you know, then you have another bad economic item um, on top of a bunch of other ones. Mm. But in the grand scheme of things, those numbers aren't that big yet. And we've had uh, incidences like this before, especially uh, the, the SARS virus in 2003. So has China not learned from that? Well, yes and no. So SARS was a huge economic event, right? And it was it's part of the reason why, you know, Chinese people are, are nervous now, justifiably, because the government really fumbled the response to that. SARS is a similar, it's a coronavirus. It's similar um, to what is in Wuhan. Um, the body count, I think, was maybe around 800 people globally from that. But it did this huge chilling effect on, on growth, um, it shaved off like one percentage of annual GDP growth, I think, in China. Some people estimate, you know, absolutely smashed tourist spending in Asia, you know, was, was knocked down the, the Hong Kong, well, contributed to knocking down the Hong Kong property market. You know, it was this big economic disaster. And the fact that it had been covered up made it worse. Alienated trading partners, you know, who like China neglected to notify that they were having this outbreak that was communicable um, and also inside the country. So that comes on top of a lot of other problems that the Chinese officials have had being straight when it comes to diseases. Um, you know, so we just recently had this outbreak of, of, of swine fever 
um, that killed off, well, around half of the, the pig population, maybe uh, directly and indirectly. You know, and that's produced this big spike in consumer price inflation. That, again, was sort of a bungled, it wasn't full cover-up, but all at the beginning, you know, the, the officials apparently didn't manage the information flow that well, um, which resulted in spreading wider than it should have. Um, and as part of this wider package of kind of troubles, you've had product quality scandals, you know, you've had these pollution scandals where, like, you know, benzene um, leaked in the Songjiang River a while ago, I think, and, uh, you know, it got into, like, the Russian water supply that it borders with northern China, and the, the Russians were quite upset at being notified so late that there was this, you know, carcinogen flowing through their water pipes, or potentially. Um, so there's that. So the Chinese government has a reputational problem they're struggling with. But on the other hand, they've done quite a lot to try and address that, right? For example, there was uh, the corruption drive that Xi Jinping championed. Has that not um, helped a little bit with that trust deficit? Well, that's going to be tested. Um, you know, certainly so far, you know, the WHO has commended China, you know, for its its speed in sort of addressing this. Um, there is no, as of, of right now, there's no evidence of an active cover-up of anything related to the Wuhan virus. But the anti-corruption campaign is sort of a double-edged sword. So it did two things. One, for one thing, it wasn't attacking, you know, like these kind of censorship or keeping things quiet. Um, it was attacking uh, venal officials, ripping off, you know, stealing, embezzling, stuff like that. Um, so it was after the financial aspect of corruption. Um, it did not come along with a commitment to greater transparency of the press necessarily. In fact, much the opposite since Xi Jinping took power. In fact, there's been much greater control over information flow. There's been greater censorship. And that's extended to kind of guidance given to the media to not print negative economic news that would dismay, you know, uh, investors or whatever. Um, and that obviously has, has not worked out perfectly in the case of the swine fever and so on and so forth. Um, so on the one hand, um, officials are, are highly motivated or more motivated to, to not steal things. But that doesn't mean they're more motivated to be honest. They're more motivated to give good news to the center. And that might cause them to, to actually be less honest by saying, well, everything's fine here. I'm just I'm going to get this under control. You know, I don't want to be giving any bad news uphill, so up, upstream. So I will cover up all silence news and I'll, I'll try and get control of this outbreak before it goes anywhere. And then I'll be fine. Um, and if that is, is plays out here, you know, it's going to be a big kind of, um, corrective to some of the, the popularity that she has enjoyed as, as kind of this, this anti-corruption crusader, if he can't get this one right. Um, the markets have had a pretty good start to the year, but is this going to have any impact there at this early stage? I mean, not yet. I mean, the, the you know, we'll have to see what happens over the Chinese New Year. Um, if, you know, it's, it's considered a pretty important consumption event, it's, it's kind of yardstick, um, you measure uh, confidence. Last year wasn't great, unsurprisingly, because you had the trade war. You know, this year, it's a week, it's, you know, it's a week off in the mainland. Um, if spending comes down sharply, then um, it's going to be kind of a, a rough, rocky start. Um, that said, you know, we don't know how the government is going to handle it. They could have, get it under control. It could be, you know, a storm in a teacup, um, you know, obviously a tragedy for the people who are exposed to it. Um, but the main thing is, like, it's going to test Chinese trust in the system. Um, and we'll just have to watch, you know, whether they've been inspired by Xi or whether they still um, don't really believe what the government is telling them. Mm. I think we're going to have to come back to this after the holidays then. Yeah, we'll check back in. All right. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Katrina. So dining in from London to help us work out this whole royal mess is Liam Proud. Welcome back, Liam. Hi, guys. So let's start off with with the piece you wrote. So you wrote this the the, the day that uh, 
Edward and Meghan came out with their statement that no one else had seen. And you took a, a very quick take on this, which was, fill us in. So we said it's broadly similar to when politicians go into the private sector um, having served in in public office, I mean, maybe it's it's a little bit harsh on them. Maybe I mean, the, the the basic idea was that like Tony Blair, the former British Prime Minister, who went on to work for J.P. Morgan, and like um, Manuel Barroso, who was the head of the European Commission, he went to work for Goldman Sachs. Essentially, what you're doing is taking your public profile, um, which was you know publicly funded in a way, um, and then seeking to privatize some of the gains for it. Well, I mean, Anna, this is something that you've been thinking about as well, right? So the whole you know, revolving door. Yeah, I mean, I, I do wonder whether it's exactly the same with the royals. Because with politicians, you can kind of understand. Like, you are a public servant, and then you, if you're using that role to then take a job in the private sector, that can get really complicated. Now, the royals aren't, you know, they aren't politicians. They aren't actually in government. They aren't making policy. They're fundamentally celebrities. Anna and I have been kind of arguing back and forth about this. I mean, I think that they are, um, you know, public servants in, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, they were born into it. Maybe they didn't have a choice, but they are kind of representing the, the larger, um, you know, Great Britain as a whole. And so I, I think you could argue that, um, you know, they're an important brand. They do a lot for Great Britain and they should be able to, I mean, I could understand why it's kind of murky trying to figure out how do you have a, a private life and a public life. So, okay, so so in this sense, so, and we're going to come back to you in a second, Liam, on a sort of pick through some of the details, but essentially what you're saying here is that there's a soft power behind this, uh, they have a brand, and as a result, I suppose, if we're thinking about this in a business context, then Harry and Meghan are doing a, a spin-off or setting up a boutique. I mean, not that they're going to have a boutique royal family, obviously, in Canada, but they're sort of setting up their own separate um, but linked brand yeah. to try and make money off it. Pretty much. I mean, there's there's a way of presenting the numbers here, which, you know, we sort of... I think usually when we do a breaking views column, we, we, we'd have spoken to the, the CEO and some bankers or something and stress-setted all the numbers. There's a proviso with all this is that we do not have uh, Harry and Meghan on speed dial, so we had to kind of piece it all together from the public documents. But you can you can present the numbers that make it look like a total financial no-brainer from their point of view. I mean, they're saying they're going to be financially independent under the new um, regime. and And basically what that seems to mean is that they'll give up the sovereign grant funding. Now, what is the sovereign grant? That's the money that the royal family gets from the taxpayer, from Her Majesty's Treasury. Um, Now, that only accounts for about 5% of Harry and Meghan's overall budget, which I estimate at no more than about £200,000. So the question very quickly becomes... um, Will they earn more than £200,000 a year from doing all the new stuff that they're able to do um, when they step back? Because at the moment, they're not able to earn any income at all as royals. Um, it seems obvious to me that they can earn way more than that. So, um, yeah, but also do a couple. You know, this, this whole concept of financial independence is a bit ridiculous if it's just that two hundred grand they are giving up because they're still getting, what, £5 million a year yeah, from, from, from the uh, dad. from Prince Charles via um, the assets that he is... Uh, uh, looking Cornwall after assets, as a Duchy, exactly. Duchy of Cornwall. So, exactly. So, you know, it's not as if they're going to be financially independent. They're just not taking money directly from taxpayers anymore, right? So that's yeah. it's, it's a big distinction. It's, 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 a, it's a very but, narrow definition of but financially why does independent. That, but why should that matter if, if they're getting money from their, you know, from, from the... I think, uh, because I, I think the, the, the reason it matters, I mean, the reason it matters, I mean, you know, first of all, he's he's only got that money because the royal family kind of inherited a lot of this... 
um, land and property back right. from the days when you know the the crown and the state were were financially you know one and the same. It, it's not like the 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 Windsor royal family ever you know bought all this stuff and is now kind of owed the, the 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 receipts from it and and second of all there's just something about it that leaves a bad taste in the mouth i mean you know the, the reason that we care or know who you know harry windsor is is because he has been put front and center um as part of this royal family which is you know essentially dependent on 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 the taxpayer for his income um so to then sort of i mean there's obviously a big non-financial element to it but but to then kind of seek to cash in on that does 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 leaves a slightly bad taste in in my mouth? I think. I guess I don't know. I think that people might get upset with this idea about them cashing in on the royal family. But to me, the reason that there's some people being upset about that is because of what it actually reveals about the royal family and the questions it raises about whether this institution is actually a valuable asset to. The United Kingdom. The way it's funded at the moment, though, if I'm right about this, Liam, I had to double check. I, I, I haven't really looked at this a great deal for about 20 years when they, they updated. The, yeah, you've been the, out of the, the UK for too long, Anthony. Yeah, exactly. That's embarrassing. But, but um, they now have, um, you know, the, the 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 sovereign grant or whatever it's called is they get a percentage of the net take from um, yeah. what the Crown what, Estate. The Crown Estate. So that uh, they are not. A direct drain on taxpayers, although they also are not paid. Taxes, no, but I think I think that's the, that's the that's the spin that you get from Buckingham Palace. Yeah. But so there's this thing called the Crown Estate, which is just a big real estate portfolio um, that pays income to straight to the Treasury, and then the Treasury gives the royal family about fifteen to twenty five percent of that. Right. And when you speak to the kind of you know the Buckingham Palace people, will say. Well, you know, we're giving all our income over and then we're only taking a little bit of it back. But that kind of presupposes that they ever really were entitled to the Crown Estate no, income it, in the no, first no, place. No, absolutely right. And as, as a, as a uh, long-standing and proud Republican uh, in the UK sense, and, you know, off with their heads and all that, absolutely get rid of the royal family as a, as a staple of the Constitution, which annoys the hell out of me. Um, I, I'm not so worried about the money they're taking there because you can, as Jen was saying, that you can see a sort of soft power stroke travel and tourism element there, although I think that's very hard to really forensically prove. But you can at least say they're getting some money back from the estates they're in control of uh, and which helps bring mm. in tourism. So I, I don't want to overdo that because, you know, I would love to see this family just completely disappear from existence. Um, as, so, as so entity, Jen, but, is your point the kind of... The to- the tourism one, the sort because that's that's an, there's a 1.8 billion pound a year of tourism revenue number that does the rounds in these discussions. Is that what you're getting at? Well, no, my 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 point is that I I think that they are a very valuable asset, and you know, going back to the soft mm. power, they're an, they're a huge global brand. I mean, I remember getting up to watch the wedding of Princess Diana and and Prince Charles. That is incredibly valuable to Great Britain, just the same way as, but, say... But, but how? how? So, um, well, is, I'm talking it, about soft power. Is it, soft, is it brand and soft well, power let me, can be let two me different get things, there. right? So. It's the same way that Coca-Cola and Disney is very powerful in China. And basically what it, it shows is like, okay, here's an American product. And I'm, I'm not you know comparing them to, to soda or Mickey Mouse, but it's kind of effectively the same thing. And you are saying like, okay, here is something that represents for better or for worse, the ideals of America. So I think in a lot of ways, the royal family represents Britain right now. And I think a lot of people look at Britain and the first thing they probably think of is Buckingham Palace. 
Yeah, I'm not sure that means they represent Britain, though, but that's a, a longer debate and we can have. I'm but. talking about the brand and not not like you you don't want but what, them to but, represent but what, Britain. No, I, yes, true. But that's what, but, different. Yeah, but I, I can see the brand. What I don't see is the soft power that brings to the, the UK government. What, what power does that then give through soft power to United Kingdom? I guess the question is, and I realize, you know, you can't kind of prove a negative here, but if if you had the history of the monarchy, you have all these buildings, you have all of this, but you don't have a current monarchy, like, would that really affect the UK's position in the world? Would that really affect whether or not somebody comes to the UK for the long term? If you look at other countries that have, you know, reduced or gotten rid of their monarchies, do we see any evidence of this? No, I mean, I'm not saying that people will not step foot in Britain because the royal family no longer exists. But I I also think that, you know, a lot of people probably visit Great Britain to go visit Buckingham Palace or, you know, that you look at the Netflix series is based on the entire like lifespan of of, uh, Queen Elizabeth. I mean, we could sit here and go through it. Um, I think that you know, they represent Britain. They, they're one of the representatives. And, you know, I think that that's valuable. And it's very hard to put a fine point and a number on soft power. It's just that's why it's called soft power. You can put a number on it, though. Well, you're talking about the tourism? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you just so they get 80 million pounds odd, something around that ballpark from from the Treasury each year. So you just you just have to say, does it represent more or less value than that? Um, that's one way of sharpening the debate a little bit. And if you frame it that way, I think Jen's probably absolutely right. It's probably more valuable than, than you know, the net present value of £80 million a year handed over. All right, Liam, final question to you then. So when thinking about the, the royal family as an institution, whether it's soft power, whether it's brand, whatever else, given what's happened with uh, Mr Windsor Jr. Uh, and his wife Meghan, um, do we see this as being a model potentially for other uh, less direct members of the royal family? I and mean, okay, he's in line to the throne. But he's what fourth or fifth now, so he's not as important as he used to be. So, do we see this as being a model for the royals to start maybe you know weaning themselves off state assistance? It, it's it, it's possible, I suppose. I mean, it's interesting that they've not been you know kicked off the 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 kind of the 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 state subsidy you know they've deliberately done it because they think their life would be better um there's there's been a big scandal in the uk around prince andrew who's who's been in a very difficult situation with this kind of public image recently deservedly so um oh, yes, you, with, with you could say Epstein, that there's yes a, yes exactly you could say that there's more of an incentive therefore to not be associated with this you know slightly antiquated institution particularly if you can earn more money by leaving it so you know without naming any names i, I, I don't see why this this wouldn't be a, a a model for future generations okay Liam, thanks for talking us through that a nice lively debate we'll have you back on soon no problem thank you everyone bye that's our show for this week thanks to liam proud Katrina Hamlin and Pete Sweeney for coming on the show. We extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on Spotify, iTunes and SoundCloud. And please do share your opinions about our shows. Join us again next week for another edition.